0: This is Fresh Tracks Weekly. It has been a whirlwind of a week. Karen and I took the weekend to go chase chuckers with our friends Skylar and Julie and their dog, Harney. It was our first time hunting chuckers and it was a blast. Skylar, Julie, and Harney are a team. And they have been out there all season chasing these things. It was one of the most fun times I've ever had upland bird hunting. Hiking around in steep mountains generally makes Kara and I happy regardless, but adding in the mix of having a shotgun and having to climb up these super steep hills and try to get a shot at these fast-flying birds when you're out of breath is just a whole other element. Second Oh Only took (laughs) me a box of shells dang (laughs) there. Chuckers are not native to North America, but they are now managed as a game species similar to ring pheasants. It is kind of funny how some non-native species are tolerated or even encouraged to exist outside of their native range. Uh, this seems to be especially true with certain fish and bird species. Often I think it has something to do with how fun they are to chase or how tasty they are. But at least in the case of Chuckers, so far there hasn't been any negative impacts to native plants or wildlife. One of the concerns is that they would transport exotic seed species such as cheatgrass, but researchers looked into it and haven't found any evidence that it's a problem. It was interesting to see how much they like cheatgrass, though. Skylar and Julie were saying how that's primarily what they're keen in on, especially this time of year as you get that winter green up. In North America, at least, cheatgrass is widely considered an invasive species that degrades habitat quality, but hey, at least the chuckers are using it. Also, Skylar is quite the chef, and he whipped up some chucker pad thai, and it was amazing so tasty. He gave us some other cool ideas on how we can cook them, primarily making sure that we don't overcook them. Anyway, chucker hunting is sweet. It's cool terrain, cool birds. We got to hang out with great friends and really Harney was the star of the week. She is a great bird dog. It was so fun to watch her work and, and point those birds. Yeah, anyway, now let's see what Michael's up to.
1: It's your boy, Michael P. Episode 27 of Fresh Tracks Weekly. Here we are, back in the fishing corner working on some fishing content just to recap kind of the last week on Friday I went ice fishing with one of my friends he's been eager to get out and we went to a local pond caught some little perch on Saturday I did a float with my girlfriend Cassie on the beautiful Missouri River here in Montana and it was all right you know we caught a couple fish a a small little brown Cassie caught a nice rainbow trout I swung up a A pretty nice fish. Sunday I went and fished, got skunked, and this week I took my 15 footer out and broke it in the first like 10 minutes of uh, fishing it. So uh, that's kind of it for the fishing corner. If you're getting out, like I said, same thing, winter midge fishing, that's where it's at. Ice fishing, go out and do it. If you're in the southeast, I'm sure you can go out and catch some bass this time of year. Have fun, go fishing, and we'll see you next week here in the fishing corner. Back to you, Marcus.
0: With that, we have a few news stories that we got to get into before our deeper dive on corner crossing. In Montana, three juvenile grizzly bears tested positive for highly pathogenic avian influenza, commonly referred to as bird flu. This occurred in three separate areas in the state, but all three bears were observed in a similar condition of being visibly sick The bears were euthanized due to their poor condition, and according to Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, they likely got the virus from consuming infected birds. It does appear that newer strains of bird flu are more prevalent in wild birds, which has also made containment in domestic populations very difficult, as wild birds can easily travel between and make contact with these domestics. Uh, Wild bird detections are currently just under 6,000, but the true numbers are likely way higher as anecdotal observations of thousands of waterfowl dying on lakes have been reported on across the United States. Domestic bird numbers have been affected to the tune of nearly 58 million. This has resulted in many poultry and egg producers eliminating their entire flocks. So, birds are by far the most affected species from this virus but it has been noteworthy in the past when skunks and foxes were killed from it, along with several non-fatal human cases. Now with three grizzly bears that we know about becoming sick, there are likely way more predators that are also contracting the bird flu and will be affected by it. In Nebraska, a large poaching case involving dozens of hunters and hundreds of illegally taken animals has finally culminated with 39 convictions and hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines. One of the members of the outfit, Jacob Huftel, was just released from prison after serving a 30-month sentence. Three other Hufdal family members were also sentenced to probation and fined. The people in the spotlight the most who were convicted are Josh and Sarah Bomar, a celebrity couple who hunted at Hidden Hills Outfitters multiple times between 2015 and 2017. The couple entered a plea agreement and pled guilty to misdemeanor conspiracy to violate the Lacey Act. In exchange for the plea, the charges of illegal baiting, illegal transportation of wildlife, and hunting without permits were dropped. They were sentenced to three years of probation, 40 hours of community service, and to pay a total of $132,000 in fines, money judgment, and restitution, along with being restricted from hunting in Nebraska for those three years that they're on probation. The interesting thing that's being spun by the Bomar's attorney is the downplaying of the Lacey Act, comparing these infractions to that of a speeding ticket, saying that the federal law excessively punishes hunters for minor infractions. A refresher on the Lacey Act, it is the oldest federal wildlife law that deals with moving illegally taken wildlife across state lines or from federal land to another piece of land. When illegally taken wildlife is transported across those boundaries, it then becomes a federal crime. In the past, the Lacey Act was hugely successful in helping curb illegal killing of tons of wildlife during the market hunting era. What it did was give real repercussions for violating game laws, having a steep financial consequence for poaching and transporting wildlife. While commercial markets for game meat are no longer the driving motivation for poaching, the Lacey Act still accomplishes a similar goal present day of giving more teeth to these infractions. The Act also does not allow for ignorance of the law. If you unknowingly hunt with an illegal outfit, or even if you accept wild game from someone who violated the Lacey Act, you can still be prosecuted. In an Outdoor Life article, Christina Meister, a Fish Wildlife Service public affairs specialist, is quoted saying, Quote, the most important aspect of the Lacey Act for hunters is to hunt responsibly and to know all the rules and regulations, end quote. We've talked about it in the past, these incredible migrations that meal deer make in Wyoming. The ongoing research and public outreach has been incredible from the Wyoming Migration Initiative along with other agencies. The newest piece of media I've seen related to this is an interactive storytelling website created by USGS and it does a great job of showing the extent of some of these migrations while detailing what has been done in the past and what needs to be done in the future to protect these corridors. I've said it before, but the media that has arisen out of this research and done on these migrations in western Wyoming is one of the best examples I've seen of scientists successfully communicating their research to the public. Hopefully this can serve as a template for other wildlife researchers to tell their story. There is some solid research out there with management implications that can lead to healthier wildlife populations. But all too often, this research is left in peer-reviewed journal articles. And don't get me wrong, peer-reviewed journal articles play a super important role in this. But without the public seeing and understanding the research, it's hard to apply it in wildlife management, especially when you often have publicly elected politicians making the decisions on wildlife and their habitat. Last November in Oregon, ballot measure 114 was approved, which will require firearm purchasers to obtain a permit from local law enforcement. They'll have to have a photo ID, fingerprints, a safety training, criminal background check, and a fee payment. The ballot measure also restricted magazines capable of holding more than 10 rounds of ammunition. There are now four combined federal lawsuits that are trying to stop the implementation of this ballot measure. Recently, the Sportsmen's and Women's Coalition has filed an amicus brief to support these lawsuits against the measure. One of the arguments is that this permitting process is to be conducted by local law enforcement and it can ultimately be one person's decision whether or not to approve or deny a permit. There's also no clear criteria for approving or denying, which can lead to potential discrimination. Also, the required safety courses are not yet available and a lack of resources makes it hard to create these courses. With the current limitations, this law would make it extremely difficult to obtain any type of firearm at all. With that, we're gonna jump into talking about some new movement on the topic of corner crossing. Really quickly, I feel like pretty much anyone in the hunting space is now aware of what corner crossing is, but super quick recap. The idea that you cross, uh, usually two pieces of public land touch at a corner, and then there's two pieces of private land at the opposite corners. Randy's using pieces of paper to illustrate. So, when you cross from one piece of public to the other piece of public, your body crosses the plane of that private property, which is pretty much considered civil trespass at this point in most states. Is that what the consensus? It can be civil heard, or criminal. Or depend, criminal. It
2: depends on what your state statute says, but right. it's, uh, it's to be decided.
0: Anyway, obviously, uh, as hunters, getting access to these little pieces of public would be pretty big win for access for us there's
1: 8.3 million acres of corner locked land look at that according Michael, to my research coming in hot Whoa. with the research
0: yeah. that's awesome which is um, over
1: half of all the like inaccessible land based on uh what am i trying to say like private land uh surrounding it
0: right
2: yeah yeah uh, land, then, landlocked yes landlocked land because right. some of the landlocked land is not accessible because there is no Uh-oh. corner to cross it yeah
0: Right. So anyway, we've seen headlines recently, a lot with the Wyoming case. And Randy has been doing podcasts, multiple now. One is yet to be released. Yep. Number, That'll come out.
2: Number three will come out uh, the end of January.
0: End of January. I'll so play. look forward to that. But one of the big things we want to talk about on this one is this bill that was just introduced in Colorado. Mm-hmm. So Randy, yeah. give us the lowdown. What's what's happening in Colorado?
2: Well, I was really surprised when I got an email from a person associated with a Republican legislator in Colorado saying, hey, need your input on this draft bill. I'm like, well, one, I'm not an attorney. (laughs) Uh, Two, I don't live in Colorado, but here's my thoughts. Uh, So I gave my thoughts, and the bill, the draft got done, I believe, yesterday, Uh, and it's going to be introduced, but politics being what they are. There's already a a yank that it may not have any any air behind it just because it didn't have co-sponsors from both sides of the aisle. Gotcha. But it's an interesting bill if you read it. It talks about what would exempt somebody from criminal trespass, and it talks about, you know, if you use a mechanical device and you don't touch anybody's property. In other words, like the guys from Wyoming did, right? They brought a ladder and they just... Right. They (laughs) never touched the actual ground. Never touched the actual real property. Yeah. Uh, And so it goes in and it it explains that. And then it also has a paragraph in there that says, in the event the person has complied with the previous parts of this law, any claim made for a civil trespass case, the court shall dismiss. So it's criminal and civil trespass in the same bill.
0: So yeah, it'd be significant. It would essentially like any corner crossing in Colorado would become legal at that point. Right. Yeah. I mean, sure seems for, like it. Reading from that, public yeah. to public land.
2: Yeah. So. Yeah,
0: that's pretty crazy. And then, well, an interesting thing about that is, so it was introduced by a Republican, right? Yep. And then and
2: the Republicans are in the minority everywhere in Colorado. And, yeah. The Democrats control the House, the Senate, and the I believe the governor also. Right. So.
0: Which is just, I guess, kind of interesting because I feel like, I mean, not, I don't want to put anyone into a bucket, but ne- or usually the Republicans are really staunch private property rights. Mm-hmm. And so it's a little bit of a surprise, I guess, to me to see yeah. a Republican a- sponsoring the bills. But anyway, uh, yeah. So is there? do you think that changes anything?
2: Uh, I don't know. Uh, we're seeing all kinds of bills right now that are skirting around the edge of it. The Colorado bill just goes right at it. Gotcha. We have drafts, the place marks in the Montana Legislature that are skirting around the edge of it. Wyoming has some bills that are skirting around the edge of it. So, to the credit to this person in Colorado, they're like, "Well, let's just call it for what it is." Uh, an interesting observation in the Montana 2013 Legislature, we had co-sponsors to a corner crossing bill uh creighton kearns from billings was the republican and when he co-sponsored it he told us all you better get up here we didn't even know the bill was coming and all of a sudden it shows up in committee so we all go to helena and what does he do after his leadership took him to the woodshed he voted against his own bill and killed it in committee it's like (laughs) oh really (laughs) what (laughs) so uh that's that's just a crazy thing It, it until something passes, you really don't know what it's going to look like. It can be amended along the way, can, so. But don't think that the Western state legislatures are just sitting idly right. by.
0: So, one aspect to this, and I think I feel like everyone else can weigh in. I'm curious on opinions on this. So, just the act of corner crossing from public to public. I mean, I, I feel like we're on the board of that would be awesome. Like as hunters, right? We get more access, but thinking about it from the private land owner's perspective. And like, I feel like one of the big arguments is a lot of the land was purchased with the idea that they had this exclusive access for a lack of a better term to that public giving the value of the, or giving it a higher value. And so, and Correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, is what are some other points? Do you know, Randy, like if you were to, like, uh, uh, you know, argue the private landowner's case of wanting to right, maintain that access to that property?
2: Yeah, that's that's the biggest, that's the biggest I mean, one. if you read the Wyoming case, uh, and we spent a ton of time on that on the podcast this morning with the two attorneys, is uh, the damages of $7.5 million, he's saying that's how much it's devalued or impaired his property. Doesn't quite meet the laugh out loud test to me, but uh, I'll let you guys answer, and then I'll I'll give my thoughts later about this. The perspective of the private landowner.
1: Yeah, Yeah. I think that uh, as a private landowner, you would be worried that people might may abuse the like the corner hopping ness. Like maybe they're going to skirt the edge a little bit. Maybe this means that there's more hunters on. Trying to access that parcel or that that uh, piece of state section or whatever it may be, and not doing it legally and with more people in that area, they're probably worried about you know hunt, or people recreating hunters whether whatever it may be, uh you know disrespecting their land. I, I feel like it's yeah. always been like a big issue with access in general to p- private lands. Um, is like the fear of like you know, a few bad apples possibly ruining it for the whole, the whole group. Right. I
2: think
0: the fact that some people might think that the exclusive public access should increase value to their property. I think that's BS because first of all, it's public. So anybody could like say you drop in there with a helicopter, you have access to that. Who's to say your neighbor doesn't just let anybody go through their property and go access that public. So it's like the fact that someone can say, or they can try to sell it as exclusive. Like you have no control over that whatsoever. And I feel like that, that shouldn't get weighed into property value at all. In my opinion. Oh yeah.
1: Like you said, Michael, you know, the, the concern about people potentially uh, abusing that, but when you think about it, you know, if you're going through the effort to research and find that stake to step over it and go through, the person who's putting themselves in those crosshairs is not the person who's gonna go gallivanting across your property and say, Oh, I didn't know where I was. You know, right. oops, I made a mistake or, you know, the person who's gonna do that is probably already doing that and yeah. sneaking on to private or doing whatever. You know, I think it's kind of you know, looking to shoot holes in this thing and looking for a bad guy. Oh, right. Instead of like this
0: actual threat to, you know, private property rights. For sure. Yeah, I, think, I mean, I can imagine, and this is a little bit of devil's advocate here, like if you're thinking of one of these big ranches in Wyoming or wherever there's these huge checkerboard patterns, and you're thinking if, you th- if trespass is an issue for you, you have a lot of people trying to access your private property. So whatever your boundary of your ranch is, is X number of miles of fence right now, open up that checkerboard, and now you have four, you know, every section of that whatever those state sections or BLM sections that you're trying to, you know, protect your private property now is a new boundary that you're trying to patrol and keep people from trespassing. But again, it's like that's under the assumption that somebody's maliciously trespassing and, you know, not using the public land. So what, I, I'm what for sure on yeah. I mean I I like to try to think of it from the perspective of the sure. private landowner. Really like give them, you know the time of day to just, exp- just see their point of view, I guess.
1: A, a big question I have is, like, a lot of that BLM landlocks or uh, corner, you know, checkerboard stuff in Wyoming, you know, sure, there are some big ranches out there that probably outfit, and that's a big plus for them is they have access to those um, parcels. But, like, what about the land and – or the oil and gas dudes? Like, why are they not – like, what's their big fear, I guess, of allowing people to – they haven't expressed a big fear. Gotcha. So it's it's mainly landowners, you know, that ha- seem to have guiding or, or access to bigger critters, or not bigger critters, just access to, to the animals that want to be hunted that are opposing this.
2: I think there's a lot of trends converging here. Uh, you know, if you go further west, South of I-80 in Wyoming, you have the Rock Springs Grazing Association. It's all checkerboard. And those are old historic landowners. They allow public access across that checkerboard. It's uh, it's almost as if it's all public. What we have converging is, one, we have technology, you know, starting with Google Maps and Jaya and, you know, on and on. We now have digital maps where before a lot of stuff, was off limits. We didn't even know that it was there. And even if we knew it was there, we couldn't really get to it with much precision. So you have that trend. You have another trend of very wealthy out-of-state people coming and buying ranches under the premise that it's sold to them, right? You've, we've all seen the ad, oh, 10,000 acre ranch. And then in the fine print, it says, but only 1,000 is deeded. Right. You know, 9,000 is leased. But they sell it almost as if it's 10,000 acres. And so you have a lot of out-of-state interests who don't necessarily share the historic values that some of the, the working landowners that have evolved on, I don't know if evolved is the right word, but are the, are the legacy to the landscape. And most of these conflicts you see, not all, but most of them, the Wyoming one being a good example, is an out-of-state landowner who came, bought a huge amount of property that he had locked up and the basis for his claim of damages is that, oh, I paid a lot of value for the exclusive use of this public land. (laughs) Gotcha. So, you know, I I look at him or his claims and his basis for this civil suit, and I compare it to the landowners over in the Rock Springs Grazing Association. They've been great stewards. They've been great to the public. And, you know, in this process, we end up, maybe lumping things too too much into one pile, and I'm glad Marcus brought up the other side of it because uh, there are a lot of places where you know people are like, no, I just have at it. Um, and you bring up a good point too, Michael. I think that the general public hasn't demonstrated a, a high level of responsibility when it comes to how they behave sometimes. Uh, and, yeah, it only takes one bad incident for a landowner to feel that way. And let's not get ourselves there's a lot of other people who they buy this land because they want that exclusive use. They, whether for them and their friends or just, you know, they have a business model about selling the public's, you know, wildlife in the form of hunting or whatever it might be. So there's a mix of all of it.
0: Yeah. Even outside of just the corner crossing thing, there's definitely some, uh, you know, people that landowners, I guess, that view the, The fact that they have a grazing allotment or a lease on the land for whatever reason, not that they think it's all theirs, but there is this negative um, perspective towards hunters sometimes from some of those uh, leaseholders. And they just have, they might just have the grazing lease or whatever, the farming lease, but they still, and I don't know if that's a holdover a lot of times on state land, especially in Montana, I've noticed because, I mean, it wasn't that long ago when we didn't have public access to state lands, and even to get the public access, we still have to have a license either hunting state lands license or a recreation license and so there it exists outside of just the corner cross, and even when there's like public county road that goes through the property, there's sometimes that sentiment they like, no, this is mine i i'm I have the lease, which <laughs> yeah. is yeah, so anyway, that's interesting um yeah I had another point and now I'm not gonna remember what it was what do you think about all this David you've been pretty quiet
3: yeah Uh, yeah, I mean well uh, I don't have as much experience as you guys do with it but I I see both sides but it is frustrating uh, that that there is like this limit to this public land in certain areas and I I definitely share like the frustration that Jace was talking about I mean, I see that there's, you know, like in any any anybody does in any kind of, you know, recreation or something. There's always the bad apples that you know kind of ruin it for everyone else. But you know, I come from Texas where everything is just so much privatized that um that just kind of it sucks looking at all that and seeing that there's these spots here that are public, but they're kind of like in places where they're inaccessible, or that there's these those small. Like kind of nitpicky things to that seem like it that prevent people from like really getting on, on that space.
0: Yeah, one thing that I'm excited about. I feel like all of this, all the things that are happening right now. Hopefully, we at least get some clarity in the yeah. in the near future because it, it's been such a gray area. Because I mean, in the past, it's you know some I've heard of people not caring about corner crossing or the case gets thrown out in court or it's just like if you ask a game warden or if you ask a land management agency, like, is this legal to cross here? And they're like, well, yeah. and I don't reach- know. not No, not really, but, you know, and so it's just this huge gray area in so many places. And, and so hopefully we start to get some clarity, and it might be piece by piece, state by state, county by county even. I don't know. Because did you learn anything new today that – you can lead us into a teaser of your podcast. You got, how many hours was that? (laughs) Uh, uh,
2: With all the time we met over the last month and then recording today, we've got so much time in this next podcast. Uh, Did I learn a lot? Uh, Yeah, in the process of preparing for this podcast, I learned a lot that, uh, one, to answer your question, the reason it's a gray area is it's never been decided in a court of law. This specific instance of where somebody crosses at a corner has never been decided in a civil case. Uh, like you said, there's somewhere it got thrown out, or there's been some criminal cases where somebody just pled guilty because they couldn't afford to defend themselves. But uh, that—that's in uh, to me the the reason why here we still are. One of the law professors that's been helping us, and when he dug into this, he's like, I cannot believe this has never been litigated. <laughs> and so there's four attorneys, uh, that are helping me and none of them can find a case where this has ever been litigated. get it. So that's why it is a gray area. You ask a game warden, they're like, well, I, I don't want to tell you I'm not an attorney. Don't rely on me. Uh, the, the other things that I learned is just how this process will unfold, how it will work. And to your point of clarity, I think that is going to be the biggest benefit that comes out of it. Uh, I think hunters need to prepare that process as it works through it is very possible that uh, a court could say no they have control over that airspace and if that's the case that's the case but it's good to know that right but when you have such outlandish claims made by the landowner in this case there's a reason all of the property rights groups and the the egg groups are telling him, Would you just shut up and fold your tent? You're about ready to sink us here. So, uh, it'll be interesting to see. The case should be, it's on the court docket, uh, should be heard in July, hopefully solved in August. The other thing I did learn is that there's about a 99.9% chance it's going to get appealed no matter who wins or who loses. Gotcha. So,
0: It's not over till it's over, I suppose, but. No, and I
2: also learn more about precedent issues that we talk about in the podcast because so many people say, oh, if the hunters win this case, that sets a precedent. No, it doesn't because if you think about this case, the corner in question, it was almost like a big picket fence, metal picket fence put up at the corner with chains across it with locks. Okay, So that's a different level of infringement under what's called the, uh, Unlawful enclosures act. Okay. Most of the corners we're going to encounter don't even have a fence, yeah. they're just yeah. a, a pin out there, right? Or they're a legitimate grazing allotment fence where it's like, oh, I got to keep my sheep or my cattle just off four the corners, whatever barbed wire fence. So okay. the court may say in this case, Hey, you're out of hand, Mr. Landowner, you can't do that, but that doesn't mean they're going to say the public owns the airspace. Gotcha. And so everyone is kind of jumping to this conclusion that, oh, if we win this case, that means everything. Well, no, it doesn't. It also means that for that district of Wyoming, it could apply. But there could be another district court judge that comes up with a different opinion. Right. And until it moves its way up the food chain of, of the appellate court or possibly U.S. Supreme Court, the uh, you know precedent value of a lot of this just is not what people want to make it out to be.
0: Right,
2: so we nerd out on that in the in the well. No, that's I what I,
0: I think. That's what a lot of people are really curious about. Because mm-hmm. yeah, I think there is an assumption that oh yeah, it's going to be legal or at least legal in all of Wyoming. And like you said, even even if it just gets that one district, that's still just one district in Wyoming where that decision was. And and then, like, yeah, who knows what the actual.
2: There's a very good chance the court could say, look, you can't fence a corner like that. Because if if you look at the pictures of his fence, it's not like he was doing anything other than keeping the public out. Well, that's a completely different fact and circumstance of an unmarked corner or a corner where it's legitimate fencing for cattle grazing and those would be different facts and circumstances so the the ruling of this case would would probably not apply. So crazy.
0: Well, I'm going to so cut on. it off cuz we're at our 20 minutes but Uh-oh. keep a, an eye out for that podcast end of January. Yep. Hunt talk Hunt talk hear, Radio. hear that Paul? Now, now we got have it schedule. out by then. Yeah, <laughs> it's on my calendar. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right, thanks